You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text for today is Exodus 35 through 40. Moses assembled the entire Israelite community and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Anyone who does work on it must be executed. Do not light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath day. Then Moses said to the entire Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take up an offering among you for the Lord. Let everyone whose heart is willing bring this as the Lord's offering, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx with gemstones to mount on the ephod and breastpiece. Let all the skilled artisans among you come and make everything that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and covering, its clasps and supports, its crossbars, its pillars and bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the curtain for the screen, the table with its poles, all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand for light with its utensils and lamps, as well as the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the entryway screen for the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grate, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the hangings of the courtyard, its posts and bases, and the screen for the gate of the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle, and the tent pegs for the courtyard, along with their ropes, and the specially woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary, the holy garments for the priest Aaron, and the garments for his sons to serve as priests. Then, excuse me, then the entire Israelite community left Moses' presence. Everyone whose heart was moved and whose spirit prompted him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services, and for the holy garments. The Israelites had done all the work according to everything the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected all the work they had accomplished. They had done just as the Lord commanded. Then Moses blessed them. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. This is God's word. Good morning. It is a good morning. It's a wonderful morning. I survived yesterday for all who were concerned for my well-being. And I'm standing here, which is phenomenal. If you don't know, I, I'm not going to say ran in a 5K. There was running involved, but that's as far as I'm taking that conversation. So if you like to run, good for you. I had a good time. I enjoyed the people I was with, which is really important. Um, but we had a good time. We are in Exodus 35, and we are in a substantial text. We're in the last sermon 
of the Exodus series, which seemed to come so quickly. Um, I am Chad, <laughs> one of the pastors. The other one was up here earlier. You know him, he's Aaron. And so throughout the text of Exodus, we see that God has rescued his people so far, right? He's rescued him, rescued them from bondage to slavery in Egypt. He's led them to safety through the Red Sea. We've seen he's been teaching them to trust him more and more as he provides for them and their needs in the desert. And for the last few weeks, we've been at Sinai, Mount Sinai. And they continue on in Sinai all the way through Exodus, through Leviticus, into Deuteronomy. You see them at Sinai. But they have been at Sinai the last few weeks and continue to be there. They're receiving the law, the instructions of building the tabernacle. And today, we build the tabernacle. Um, let's go ahead and pray that God's Spirit be with us as we walk through this text and, uh, and see what God has for us. Father, I'm grateful, Lord, that we have the privilege to uh, open up your word and to hear from you and your voice. God, we're grateful that you dwell with your people that you're even here with us now. May we feel your presence near. <clears throat> May we trust in you and your spirit to guide us, Lord, as we seek your truth, your, <clears throat> your word, and how we might be obedient to you. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We've covered a lot of content, and we actually have a lot of content in this reading, as you saw Jess reading through, skimmed through a lot of the stuff. Matter of fact, a lot of it, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail, is apparent, seems at least on the surface, more repetitive from some previous context in the passage of talking about all of the tabernacle in detail and how it's being set up. Um, but what I don't want to get lost on us in this, in this conversation, which I think is so evident here in the very ending of the way that, that Moses is led by God to wrap up Exodus, is ultimately what God is trying and seeking to accomplish. What is his goal? What is his purpose? What is he tr striving to do? He's, he's, he's freed these people from Egypt who, as we watch from the outside, look to be a little scatterbrained, right? I mean, even last week we talked about the fact that they heard from God and they heard him uh, directly tell them, and it was scary, right? This scary voice comes into your home and your life and speaks in such a way that shakes you and says, don't make graven images, don't make idols, Okay, and now I'm going to go talk to Moses. And what do they do immediately while Moses is gone during that 40 days? They make a golden calf. They make an idol. And we look at that from the outside and can say and feel sometimes, well, that's crazy. We don't do that. Yet we, if we're honest in our life, we might not have a golden framed calf in the living room. But there are things that will grab our attention and we'll turn to trust in um, more than we do God. Uh, throughout our life. But we're watching them as they walk through this, and we're thinking these crazy people that God is, is trying to save and then do what with. We also recognize, and as we talked about in the past, Exodus is, as believers, our story. So in a way, we are those crazy people that God is redeeming and trying to do what with. And so I don't want to lose the simplicity of what God's goal and his mission is because honestly, brothers and sisters, God is on a mission and he has a goal. He is accomplishing his goal and he has a way in which he has chosen to go about it. And if we look at this text in particular, and believe me, 
we can go down all kinds of rabbit trails. There is plenty of content for us to cover in here. We could get caught up on the symbolism in the tabernacle, and let me not say that in a dismissive way. Those things are important and helpful, but we don't have time for that. I want to talk about what is happening here and why it matters. So, so when we consider first that God has first and foremost redeemed his people from bondage in Egypt, he's doing that because he made a covenant with Abraham. Okay? A long time ago in Genesis, we see him, we see him make a covenant with, with Abraham and promised him to make a, his people a great nation. But then Abraham's family goes into bondage in Israel, and, I mean, Egypt, and as we see, they've been there for 400 years. Where's God? He's working. 400 years, you might be asking, where is he? It's a question that's been asked all the time every time we have a shooting like we've seen. Where is God? And, and sometimes we might be tempted to feel like the psalmist in this situation, like Psalm 10 tells us, Lord, the psalmist cries out, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? He's wondering, why in this feeling do you feel absent? Can you imagine 400 years of bondage? God, where are you? Where are you? I thought we were God's people. What's happening? But the psalmist also comes back at the end of the chapter and says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. The Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. The psalmist says, Where are you, God? I know that you will accomplish your good. You will do what's right. And the same thing I'd hope we remember in this as we see God working through Exodus, that he has a purpose and he has an intent, and it may not appear that God is taking action, but it's not because he is impotent. He is not without power. It's not that he's weak and that he's incapable. It's, that God, it's not that God does not care. At times, God may seem distant for us. He might seem like, why am I in this dark space? Where is the Lord? But his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect, but God always takes action with purpose, and he, God, hear me, God is always right on time. Maybe not what we think our time should be, but for Israel, for his mission, for his purpose in this world, he's right on time. He comes in power and strength in Exodus, and he redeems Israel so that everyone would know that he is the Lord. We've seen that over and over again. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So what? Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. So what? That they will know I am the Lord and that no other God is more powerful than me. Watch me work. So what is God's purpose, though, ultimately in this? Is it just to put his glory on display? In a, in a way, yes. But even more so clearly here, we see... And he clearly articulates this in Exodus chapter 6, 6-7. There it is. Therefore tell the Israelites what? I am the Lord, and I will bring you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. He will do what? He will, they will be his people, and he will be their God. He is, we don't have to go very far. We've already said it. There's darkness throughout this world. We're surrounded by it. 
And if you do any kind of look back on, ancient, on the ancient civilization, the world the Egyptians and, and Israel was living in, it is not different. It is dark. There is death. The, the, the civilization sacrificing thousands of human beings to their gods. Egyptians sac- sacrificing and, and, and worshiping a pantheon of gods, the Greeks, the Romans, and violently living their life, conquering others. And all the things were happening in the midst of this world that God created. And, and in Exodus, all of a sudden, we see in a visible way God pierces that darkness. God comes in in an active way and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he begins what is the start of what he accomplishes in Christ. We, he, believe me, listen, he's been at work the whole time, but we see him actively at work and he shows us something about him that we can see and translate and understand is how he works even today in Christ. It's super important because because you can get tied up in all this. You can find controversy. People will dig into the law and critique little bits and pieces and try to find ways and nuances. But the truth is, it's a rebellious heart that doesn't want to see what God's doing. It really is. Because God is redeeming Israel and working through them in this story so that his glory could dwell with his people, that they would be his people. It's not a love them and leave them kind of situation. He's not like, hey, come out, you're saved, great, find your way. You're my people now, and that they might worship him, that he would now be their God. See that? Two things he's doing, that he would dwell with his people and that they might worship him. God redeemed Israel for this purpose, and brothers and sisters, God redeems us to fill the world with his glory through us so that all people might worship him exactly the same thing. He's not doing it in a tabernacle. He's doing it in us. He's not doing it in a place with specific people. He is now trying to reach the entire world, and he's doing it through us. So what I want us to see this morning is that what God began here with Israel, he fully completes in Christ. As he worked through Israel toward his purpose, beloved, he continues to work today through his people to accomplish his purpose. So let's look closely. What is it that God is doing? We're going to do this. Two parts. God is, what is God doing on mission? What is he accomplishing on mission? And secondly, how is he working through his people on mission? Okay, how is he working through his people to accomplish mission? First, God is on a mission to dwell with his people. He had to create a way in the, to be that he could dwell in the midst of his people. This is since the garden. He's trying to revert what happens there, right? And Adam and Eve... Sin enters the world. All, all of uh, fellowship is broken. And now the world is in turmoil because sin, death, and destruction is ruling and reigning. And God has come into that space and says, I want to now dwell with my people closely. I want to live in the midst of them. How is he going to do that? Well, we see when he's on the mountain, Israel can't even approach the mountain because of his glory. They, have to, they, can't, they back off. They can't be near him. Moses, whenever he's in his presence in some small fracture, fraction of a way, because it says he can't see his full glory, he's radiating from his face, okay? He's got the veil because others can't even see the glory that radiates. 
<clears throat> in Exodus 25, he says, this is how I'm going to accomplish it. In verse 8, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. This is what we're going to do, guys. We're going to make a sanctuary. And then in Exodus 40, he says, the cloud covers that tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord fills that tabernacle. So Moses was then unable to enter the tent of meeting. Why? Because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Now, there's a, several interpretations of, or maybe there, there are speculations on what exactly is happening. Why is it Moses now at this point can't enter the space in which God is present? Because he's been in his presence before. He's gone into the cloud before. And there's been speculation of the fact that he couldn't be in the presence because now we have the fullness of God's glory. Remember it said he tucked him behind a rock and he only was able to see him from behind. So maybe it's the fullness of God's glory that's now preventing him from coming. God's glory is filling the tabernacle. It, makes, it reminds me of you, the old movie, uh, the old movie, the cartoon Aladdin. Right? You remember this? Genie. He gets that one scene where he's like, phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. So like all of God in his glory is in this itty bitty tabernacle. And it's just too much for, for Moses, right? No Aladdin fans in here? We know this reference. It's a great clip. Um, the other, other speculations are that he's waiting on an invitation from God. Chapter 24, he was invited up the mountain, so maybe he's waiting on that. Uh, maybe, maybe God just needs a little more God time. I don't know. Maybe he's like introvert like me and he's going to his room and be like, I love people, but I need less people right now. Moses, stay out. Does that resonate with anybody? No, that's not the case. I don't think that's it. Um, flat basis has got, in some way, in some form, it seems to be, if I read this text, here's my preference. My preference is that it's because of God's fullness, somehow in his fullness, if his glory is in the tabernacle preventing Moses. And the reason I get there is because that is what I feel 35 explicitly says. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting. Why? Because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So something about God's overwhelming glory is preventing Moses from getting into the tabernacle. But that's not what I want to stress here today. I just want to acknowledge that. Because now as God's glory is filling the tabernacle, the important thing is not only is it filling the tabernacle, it's in the middle of his people, where he wants to be, to dwell in the middle of his people. He's transcendent, yes, they can't be in his presence directly. They need something containing or around God, but he's also imminent. He's near. He's right next door. He's right in the middle of his people. He's present. He's close. And also beyond that, as Moses can't enter, God is also determining how he is to be approached. He's setting the ground rules. And it's not because he's arbitrary, but it's for our good. I mean, we read throughout Scripture, not a man or woman could live if they were in full, right in the fullness of God's glory. So he's also doing it for their good. So God made a way that he could dwell in the midst of his people. He did it in a way that had clear directions for how to purify themselves before him and how to offer sacrifices for sin, all of these rules, all of the, the laws he lays out, so that they can be in relationship with him. So he wants to be in the presence of his people to dwell near them. The second thing is he wants to be worshipped by them as their God. Moses told Pharaoh to let Israel go for the very explicit purpose of going from Egypt and worshiping the Lord. Remember that? Now, if you're like me at a first brush on that, I'm thinking it's a little bit of shade in the truth, okay? I mean, you know, like you're saying a half-truth. 
He's saying, I, I want them to come out here so they can worship me. Just kidding, we're going to run away. Like, anybody do that as a kid? That was just me. Maybe I'm the only one. All right. So it, it, it can feel that way, but really I think it's important for us to consider what is worship that he's seeking. God's not looking for something different. He's being straightforward. And, and I looked it up. Merriam-Webster told me this. All right, gave me a definition of worship. The world looks at worship and says it's to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or a supernatural power. And I don't think, actually I know, that based on Scripture, that doesn't totally encapsulate what worship is for us. And so I turn to Romans 12 and see what does Scripture tell us about worship. And we read this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. If you remember a couple, few weeks ago now, we talked about the Ten Commandments were provided and God said, don't bear the Lord's name in vain. Don't carry my name in vain. And he places his name on his people. And when he says that I'm to be worshipped, that means present all of you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. All of you as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and pleasing to God. That's our true worship. So that God is looking for Israel not only to do acts of worship that we would deem worship like burning incense, making sacrifices, raising holy hands even in worship and song. That is actually critiqued when the whole heart is not involved. When it's an exercise of, of outward presentation and God doesn't have all of you, he's not pleased. And his goal then is to dwell and live among his people and then to be worshipped, to be honored, to be revered, to be followed, that they would bear his name, they would follow his commands, they would love him with all of themselves. So what does he do to help them get there? He gives them the law. He gives them clear direction for the tabernacle and worship. He doesn't leave them hanging. And this is no small thing. Throughout history, if you ever look in the ancient world, people were frantic to figure out how what the gods wanted from them. They would do all kinds of things like sacrifice pigs and dig through the intestines to see if there was a message in there. And God that we serve wrote it down. And I think we lose that. We've had it for so long. That he spoke to his people, he gave them clear direction, and he provides for their needs in the desert. He literally gives them all that they need, and he continues to do that today. And finally, we see in Exodus chapter 4, he also physically in the cloud leads them. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle. Throughout all the stages of their journey, if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout the stages of their journey. So God tells them exactly what he desires from them. He demonstrates that they could trust him. He shows them 
how to follow him, all of these things are mercies from God. All of these are mercies from God, that he would speak so clearly and directly and give us clarity on that. It's remarkable. It's evidence of our sin nature that we want to muddy the waters, that there's many roads to God. Let's just pick one. Yet many roads lead to destruction. God said, don't take those paths. If there was a, if there was a wood, you know, you, every cartoon or whatever kid show always involves some dark, scary woods that they don't want to go into, or maybe they decide to because one of the kids thinks it's a good idea, whatever. But it's a dangerous space. If you had this dark world that we live in and navigate that, and the God of the universe says, hey, pick a path, see what happens. Instead, he says, no, A, here's the right path, B, I'll be with you. And so, all of these things God lays out, and he does it for what? The purpose that all of Israel can worship him, can serve him, can follow him, could give all of themselves as a living sacrifice in true worship. God's on a mission to dwell with his people and for them to worship him as Lord. Listen, if you're God's people, he desires for you to draw near, that you would know him and that you would trust him more. This is an incredibly hard truth to believe when we're in dark times, is it not? When you're in your own personal, present darkness in your life, sometimes we're on the mountaintop, other times we're in the valley. And for the times you're in the valley, sometimes it feels like you're never out of it. This is actually our second time looking at the details of the tabernacle that God lays out. And what I don't want us to forget is the golden calf was actually in between. He came around the first time, Israel endured dark days in Egypt, and, 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 and God gave them direction and said, I've led you out and saved you. And then he presents to them the law and says, don't make these calves. And then when Moses was on the mountain for simply 40 days, they were in the desert, they were vulnerable, they were scared, they wanted something to hold on to. And that doesn't excuse them, but they made a golden calf. And they wanted something to worship. And what you don't want to miss is that even though they, they abhorrently disobeyed, they, they cheated on the God who brought them out of Egypt, God didn't change his plan. He said, I want to dwell with you, and I want you to worship me. They make an idol. He says, I still want to dwell with you, and I want you to worship me. In your darkest days when you doubt, when you fail, when you're suffering, when it feels like nobody cares or loves you because of the thick cloud of darkness hanging over your head, if you're wondering where God is, he has not moved. Don't hide your face. Don't run from him. Run to him. Seek him. He's there. In times of trial and our greatest weakness, God is a near companion a loving, ever-present Father who wants to lead and guide his people through life's desert. And I feel compelled to pause on that because there are times in our lives and there are many people who experience their life differently and sometimes the idea of a father is not comforting for some. Don't measure what a father is and could be in the perfection of God based on the infallible, the, the fallible humanity that we are. If your father wasn't loving, kind, and near, and compassionate, that's sin. 
And even as we see in the accusations of abuse, there are some fathers who even cross those lines of trust and care. God is a father who is kind and gracious and present. He holds the hand of his children. He walks with them through dark days. He is a perfect father. And he even, ple- he even pleads with his kids to keep bugging him with prayers. That's remarkable. My kids come at me like two times with the same request. I'm like, did I answer it last time? He says, keep coming. Keep coming. And Charles Spurgeon puts it this way when he talks about this very truth. He says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. So let's look at how God's doing this same mission through Christ. He's on the mission. He's demonstrating he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to accomplish it. He wants them to worship him. And he's doing the exact same thing through Christ. He's continuing the same thing through Christ. John 1 actually tells us that the word tabernacled among us. It says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word being Christ. And that word dwelt is exactly the Greek word that is used as the translation for tabernacle throughout the Old Testament. He came and set up his residency with us. And so that means God, in the fullness of God in Christ, was present with his people. And then he not only came and tabernacled with us, he experienced all the trials and troubles that we did. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are. Just like in Colossians and other spaces, God's fullness came in Christ. All of his glory, all of his glory and the fullness of it that kept Moses out of the tabernacle. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's what he says. Now the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle that God prescribed and told Israel about have been fully and finally complete in Christ. He is our perfect sacrificial lamb, taking all the sins of the world. Hebrews 10 tells us exactly that when he says every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, being Jesus, after offering one sacrifice or sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. I love this imagery because clearly you don't sit down until the job's done. I mean, you make the buzzer beater at the end of the game, you're wrapped up, you go to the locker room, and you sit, you're done. You celebrate, it's over. God says, it's complete. Christ has done it all. Have a seat, son. No more sacrifices for sin. Where sin kept us from being in the presence of God, Jesus now removes that barrier between God and his people. No more veil on Moses, no more veil on the temple. It was torn. The fullness of God dwelled in Christ. And listen, for those in Christ, God has set up residency in your heart. He's with you. He was in the fullness of Christ, and now as we are in Christ, he is in us. We are the temple of God. It's exactly what Paul points out in Corinthians when he says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you. God's presence on earth is not captive to a building anymore. His presence moves throughout the earth and all of his people, worshiping in spirit and truth, just like he told the Samaritan woman in John. 
She wanted to debate about the hill. She said, hey, do you worship over here? Do you worship over there? He said, there's a day when everyone will worship in spirit and truth because God will be in you. As we gather and we talked about this, as we mentioned even this morning, the spirit of God is with us in this place. We come together to remind ourselves and to be encouraged and built up and edified the body, knowing that God is with us in his fullness. But as we go from here, the Spirit of God also goes with you. The Spirit of God is in you to your homes, your neighborhoods, your workplace, the grocery store, the gas station, the coffee shop. As you go, you probably don't see the cloud going before you. But that's because God's in you. Everywhere you go, the Lord is with you. The fullness of God's glory dwells with his people. And we can follow him. We can follow him because he writes the law on our hearts. Because he lives within his people. And just because you don't see that cloud before you, you might become too comfortable thinking that God's not doing something miraculous in your time. That he's not leading you. That he's not guiding you. And, expecting, and not expecting him to move. Because they saw the cloud move. We don't pray, we don't work, and we don't live with expectation. But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he's still working. And when it comes to worship, he still moves. When it comes to worship, we might manufacture the appearance of obedience. The Pharisees did. But our prayer life will actually reveal if our worship is truly in him. The Discipline of Grace, the book that we are studying by Jerry Bridges, he has a quote that I think is incredibly fitting for this. He says, how then can we grow in a conscious sense of dependence on Christ if we're going to follow him? He says, how can we grow in that? Through the discipline of prayer. Prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence. We may assent to the fact that we are dependent on Christ, but if our prayer life is meager or perfunctory, we thereby deny it. We are, in effect, saying we can handle most of our spiritual life with our own self-discipline and our perceived innate goodness. Or perhaps we are saying we are not even committed to the pursuit of holiness. Because of Christ's finished work, the Spirit of God fills you, and he empowers you to worship him and to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I would pray earnestly that we would so clearly be led and guided as King's Cross Church, because we want to follow him. That he would do far greater things than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's look briefly. If God is doing what he's done here and dwelling with his people and having them worship him, how did he accomplish the goal? And how does that work for us today? God is on a mission through his people. First, God instructs and works through our obedience. Okay, passages in chapter 35 and 39 appear to be repetitive. We've already talked about this. Some argue, actually argue that this is original and that 25 through 31 were an addition. But that isn't, that's not the case. It doesn't have to be. Repetition is common in ancient texts. Okay, it was a common phenomenon. There's another ancient work I remember seeing. It had some 90 lines of repeated text from exactly previously in the story. It wasn't uncommon. And, but in this case, you actually see a distinction between the two. Even though it talks and, and focuses on all the elements of the tabernacle, in 25 through 31, the focus is on God's instruction. It says, uh, if you read throughout that text, and I encourage you to, it says you are to make, you are to construct over and over again. 
Then in 35 through 39, the focus is on Israel's obedience. He made, he constructed, they made all of the time. And what did they make? Exactly what God told them to make. 39 through 42, 43, why do we know that they did? Well, the Israelites had done all the work according to everything the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses suspected all the work that they had accomplished, they had done just as the Lord commanded, and then Moses blessed them. It actually is intended to be and does mirror the creation story. That the work is done, that Moses looks at it and says it's good. This stands in contrast to the golden calf incident in the previous chapters, right? Because where they were disobedient, now God's people are obeying exactly what he tells them to do. And chapter 35 starts with a simple reminder to obey the Sabbath command. It actually starts with this reminder. So God is saying, obey me, and he starts with this kind of a strange, seemingly out of place, build a tabernacle, by the way, keep the Sabbath. And I think it's not to be lost on us because the tabernacle was going to be a huge undertaking, was it not? It's a big project, and, and, and there's a temptation if we think today I'm doing something for the Lord that I just need to work overtime on this and get it done. And so God is in caring for his people saying, by the way, you still need to take the Sabbath. Working hard for Jesus in one area is not an excuse to ignore other areas of obedience. We don't pick and choose what to obey on mission. The Sabbath was given for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. So it's a gift. And God's commanded it. And he said, remember, my, my people get rest in me. God works explicitly through our obedience. He doesn't need our creative shortcuts, and he doesn't desire our compromise. And I think that's such a temptation in our life today. That's a temptation in ministry, to excuse away the smaller details, to excuse away focusing on caring on people. Do you know, if you read the Old Testament prophets over and over again, the passage that says, for he condemns people who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Primarily, it revolved around those who felt like, look at all the great mission, the ministry, all the obedience and things we're doing for God and ignoring the, what they considered to be the trivial issues of justice and peace for people who needed it, the vulnerable. God says there's no compromise on that. It's all of it in worship to me. The second thing we see in the way God works, he works through our obedience. Second, he provides for them, and he works through our generosity. Israel plundered Egypt on the way out. God asked them to give from their hearts in this context. Take up an offering among you from the Lord. Let everyone whose heart is willing bring this to the Lord's offering. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, all the things that they needed for the temple. He said, give it from your heart. In 35, 21, it says, everyone whose heart was moved and whose spirit prompted him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services, for all its horn garments. And then we see what is often not the issue, which is pointed out to me. They are bringing goods, you know. Uh, this doesn't normally happen in a building campaign. They're like, guys, stop. You're bringing too much. Okay. All right. But good example might be like VBS. If you guys like inundated them with eggs, they may be like, all right, enough plastic eggs. We're good. Okay. They're bringing physical things. So I can understand, 
Okay, they needed a certain amount. And it says in chapter 36 that the artisans actually said the people are bringing more than is needed, Moses, for the construction of the work of the Lord commanded to be done. And Moses gave the order, let nobody else bring anything else. So God provided, and think about this. He, held, he provided for them in the plundering of the Egypt, but he didn't do just enough for the tabernacle. They clearly had way more than they needed for the tabernacle. He was abundantly generous with them and just said to them, give what God lay, what, what I lay on your heart. Just give from your heart. And they were abundantly generous. God redeemed his people out of Egypt. He provided for them in the wilderness. He demonstrated to them that he is worthy of their love, trust, and devotion. And out of their love and trust for God, they moved Israel to generosity. We want to build a house for you. And think of the contrast of what we see here in the text of Scripture and their generosity compared to Pharaoh in Egypt. When they were serving Pharaoh, we talked about that. Serving and worship was the same verb. Okay? Serving Pharaoh was forced labor. Serving God invites them to give from their hearts. Worshiping God. Serving Pharaoh is building Pharaoh's kingdom for his glory at their expense. Worshiping God is building God's tabernacle for his glory and for our good. Serving Pharaoh is a malevolent, arbitrary leader, a, God, a terrible God. I mean, think he changed his mind all the time. He's like, no, you don't get straw for the bricks. No, I want you to work harder. No, you don't get this. No, I want you to work more hours of the day. Whatever he changed, he decided. And it was arbitrary, it was malevolent, it was evil. Worshiping God, he is patient, gracious, merciful, and unchanging. He asks the same thing every day. And when we fail, he says it again. And when we look at Egypt, we look at Israel, we look at what they plundered from Egypt, we recognize that everything that they got from Egypt was from God. What do we have that's not from God? What do we have that he hasn't first given us? When we talk about the mission that needs to be accomplished inside of this context, they're building a tabernacle. And all of Israel recognized that you provided for us and we want to provide for you generously as you've asked us. And I think and I know God continues today to work in his people that way, out of the generosity of their hearts. Even Paul in the New Testament says that not to try to lay down some law, but to give out of the overflow of your generosity so that God moves you as we trust him more. Thirdly, we see this. As God works with his people, he equips them and he works through our labor. God gave a lot of intricate details for the construction of the tabernacle. I don't know how many metal workers are in here. Anybody know some fine craft jewelry? I knew a jeweler once, not long ago, right? He was doing some jewelry. Any fine jewelers could do some detail work, edging. If Patrick was here, the Savelles, he actually did work on the trophies for, and he did jewelry work, so like uh, the trophies for the Kentucky Derby. Fun fact for everybody. Um, so, so this is an uh, intricate detailed tabernacle that they're building, and here's what God does. Exodus 35, verse 10, let all the skilled artisans among you come and make everything the Lord's commanded. First they said, come on, if you got skill, bring it. In 30 for 35, Moses says explicitly, Moses says to Israel, Look, the Lord has appointed by name Bazalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every kind of craft. 
to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mourning, and to carve wood for work in every kind of artistic craft. He's also given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahizamech, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. So they're not only, they know the skill, but now they have the ability to teach others how to do it. And he's filled them with skill to do all the work of a gem cutter, a designer, an embroiderer in blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen and a weaver. They can do every kind of craft and design artistic design. God made the request. God provides the skill, the gifts, and the talents of the work that needs to be accomplished. And, and listen, in the church and in this setting, we often talk about spiritual gifts. And we have, maybe you've seen a spiritual gift inventory, listing of things like this. What's, what's notable here is this is not what would be on a spiritual gift inventory. Doing like a gold and jewelry and being able to make gemstones and, or you know, form them and cut them. This is, a, this is, for me, affirming what other artistic skills God has given you that we can lay down at the altar for him. All of it is worship. He is highlighting that everything he has enabled you to do is for him and his glory. That we should not think that there's any reason we should do less than the best we can do for him in any area of our life. And it flows over into every area of ministry that we serve, and it carries to today when we think of what God's doing in Christ. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul says no less. He says himself that God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Is anybody here on that list? That's okay if you're not. Okay? Those aren't actually the ones doing the ministry. In verse 12, to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry that they would build up the body of Christ, that the gifts and talents that you have, mine is not hospitality. Remember I talked about introvert, introvert earlier? Mine is, you're in my house, this is fun, I'm going to my bedroom, hang out. I like to be social, I don't want that to sound like I don't like people. I just get tired, I'm being honest. But some people, they live in that moment, and they want, God has gifted them with the ability to know how to make people feel warm and welcome. And he says that God has given you that and that we, those who might be pastors and preachers and teachers, can equip you to feel more fully uh, able and equipped to work of ministry to building up the body of Christ. For what purpose? That until all of us reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. As the body, as God builds his house among the body of Christ, you have an intricate part as one of those artisans in the church— that contributes to the health and the building up of maturity of other believers. Have you thought for a moment that the gifts and talents you have, not only for some criticism or critique or guilt trip that, hey, you're not giving using your burden. No, but for the actual health of the church, you have an opportunity to contribute to that. That those brothers and sisters among us would grow in maturity because of what God's gifted you. That you can care for them and love them and serve them and minister to them in a unique way. So that what? Speaking the truth in love, let us ev grow in every way into him who's the head, Christ. From the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promoting the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. God will compel us as a people to serve one another for the building up of his body the temple that he has here on earth. Fourthly, God consecrates and works 
through imperfect people. I hope this is an encouragement to you. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it along with all the furnishings so that it will be holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar so that it will be especially holy. He's concentrating, he's consecrating, setting aside, he's anointing instruments and utensils for holiness in the, t- in the temple. And then verse 12, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Clothe Aaron with the holy garments. Anoint him and consecrate him so that we can serve, he can serve me as a priest. Have you ever considered how remarkable it is that Aaron was consecrated for the Lord's work? He just built a calf. It literally was like, I mean, it sounds like an excuse like, I don't know, Moses, they, we threw some gold in a fire and like this calf came out. So we were like, let's worship it. That's the guy that's going to be the priest? And their anointing will serve to inaugurate a permanent priesthood for them throughout their generations? He led the people. Listen, Aaron would be canceled today. God doesn't cancel people. He redeems them. He restores them. What a testimony of God's grace that he uses imperfect people and says they're holy. He consecrates them for his holy purpose. He is still chosen to intermediate for God on behalf of Israel. And then among all these things we talk about, I want you to make sure you've seen and heard this, that God is ultimately the one who changes the people. As he's done all this work through Israel, God is ultimately the one who makes all this possible. He redeems people out of bondage. He consecrates people for his mission. He leads his people through the desert. And the question has to be asked, will you follow him? He's the one that changes We don't go out in our own power, we go out in his. He is fullness in us so that as we pray in power that he would move. Like he leads with a cloud by day and night. He now works in through you. We joke about that phenomenal cosmic power in an itty-bitty living space with Aladdin in in the genie. But for us, phenomenal cosmic power is not, is an understatement. And he resides in you. As we're closing, I want to revisit uh, four areas of growth that we spoke about from the beginning of Exodus. And I want to pray that, um, that God has grown us in these areas, but also started to reveal himself more and more to us. That what we see here in the end of Exodus, that he is beginning to accomplish through Israel, he is continuing to do today through his church. That Christ has accomplished the work to establish God's dwelling place on earth so that now his people can worship him. And now he looks to all of us and says, will you spread the kingdom around the globe? Will you fill the neighborhood with my glory? Will you fill your workplace with my glory? And so what are those areas we talked about? That we would be trusting in God's providence more. We would trust him as Israel was, was encouraged to trust more in God and his leading, that he is for our good, that we'd rest in his promises that he has given, that we would glory in the midst of God's presence, that God being in us and through us would, would, would be a glorifying thing, that we would, we would love and worship him more deeply. And then finally, I put a, pair, a little 
thing in here because, you know, even I change as I go through it. I said originally live as God's people, but I think a more wholehearted look, even as we see this, is to worship as God's people, that every moment of every day is set aside as holy for God. I pray these are true that you've grown in these areas, and I pray you continue to explore and examine how God might lead us to be trusting him, resting in him, glorying in his presence and his name, and worshiping him day by day by day, every moment of every day, more and more as he leads us. Would you pray with me?